to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. And Chelsea, I feel like there's no point burying the lead here. This is a book we both loved. Absolutely loved. Like this is going to be in my top 10 reads of the year list. No question. If not like top three or five, because it was so good. So, so good. All right. So the custom of the country, we chose this. We've been reading it kind of slowly over the course of a couple of months with our Patreon Classics Club. And if you're just joining us for the main feed episode, welcome. You can listen whether or not you have read this book. But if you haven't read it yet and you decide that you want to, we want to tell you upfront that all of the recaps that we produced for our literature scholars over on Patreon are still available to you. So if you listen to our discussion today and you think, oh my gosh, I need to read this book, but I want a little bit of support or just like to feel like I'm at a book club discussing it, head over to Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash novel pairings. Join us at the literature scholar level and you can access all of those recaps. We recapped each of the five books of the novel individually, plus a discussion of the introductions and a reflection episode on the novel as a whole. So there's tons of custom of the country content on Patreon for you just just waiting there. Those recaps honestly felt like recapping a reality TV series, like recapping a Real Housewives series or a Gilded Age period drama. It honestly was just... Yes, there was a lot of nerdiness and classic literature analysis, but it really just felt like we were getting to (laughs) gossip together about these people in each chapter. So definitely check those out. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's get into into this book. Chelsea, do you want to start with general impressions or should we give a quick summary first? Let's do a little bit of a summary first, and then I I really want to hear like why you loved the book as an entry point to conversation. But basically, The Custom of the Country is about our main character, Undine Sprague, and she's beautiful. She is stunning. She's young, and she's wealthy, but she's not uber wealthy. Her family is from the Midwest, and they left to seek a glamorous, big life for her. And she's super ambitious and that's what she wants. She wants to marry into old money so that she can have all of the wealth and access to society possible. So she does get married to old money, but she quickly realizes that that's not enough money for her. And she gets married again. And then she realizes that's not enough for her. And then she divorces again. So it's very much a marriage or it's a novel of marriage and divorce. Um, but it is also about this woman's ambition in the background is all of this gorgeous gilded age detail that Edith Wharton includes and characters like corrupt businessmen who are very of their time. Um, 
and kind of reflect Undine's ambition in a different way. Um, Her first husband, Ralph, serves as such a foil for her. He is old money. She is new money. And we get to see how these social spheres interact with each other and which one ends up on top. Um, There's so much commentary about America in here. And it's one of those novels where a lot happens but it's hard to give big plot points other than she gets married, she gets divorced. The stuff in between there is important, but it's smaller stuff. And, you know, we're going to get into spoilers, especially at the end of of this discussion, but I don't want to spoil too much more than that in the summary. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is, it's small stuff, but it's also like high drama stuff. Like there are all these little things in there where reading just my jaw dropped. Like I just could not believe the direction things had taken or just the little things that Undine does or says. I'm saying little because they're not hugely pivotal to the plot, but they're like big things in terms of her life and how she treats other people. So it is, it's, it, it's not episodic. It is like a, you know, that each, each, um, small plot point builds to this larger, narrative, but it does kind of feel like each chapter feels almost like a little like snack where you get like a new, like kind of wild, dramatic uh, plot point to, to, to snack on. Yeah. It's not episodic, but it is theatrical. Mm -hmm. It's very cinematic. And I don't know. I just, I felt like as I was reading every sort of dramatic twist, I could see how it would be on the screen, mm-hmm. which is so fun when you're reading the classics. But I think, Sarah, don't let me speak for you, so <laughs> let me know if I'm wrong, but I think part of why we both loved this so much is that dramatic twisting and turning. We did not look at summaries before we read this. We went in as blind as we possibly could so that those recaps were our fresh reactions to what happened. And it is so rare that we read any classics like that, even classics that we haven't read. As an English major, you just kind of like get it from the water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You kind of just like pick things up and generally know what happens in a classic or you know what it's about if it's one of the big ones. This is a, you know, an iconic Edith Wharton book, but it's not necessarily one that, you know, everyone has read. And we just, everything felt so fresh and new. And it's just rare to get that experience with classic literature. And that's, I think, part of why it was so fun to read. Yeah, absolutely. That That is definitely one of my highlights from reading this this book is just not not knowing where it was going, being completely surprised by the the twists and the turns. But also, I guess just the fact that there were twists and turns, like often, even if I'm unfamiliar with a classic, like sometimes there's just such a, I'm so familiar with narratives that I feel like I have a sense of where the narrative's going in. And I'm not always right, but often with classic literature and with with things that are, you know, within the umbrella of marriage plots, you kind of have a sense of like, where things will end up. This one I just really did not know. I I had fun guessing. I had fun making my predictions and talking with you about what we where we thought things were were headed, but there really were like pretty shocking moments throughout. 
And that is not always the case with older books. What else did you love about the book besides the experience? Like, why do you think people should pick this up? Well, I think that we'll talk a lot about Undine as a character, but she was just a fascinating person to watch. Not Not like a fascinating person to like, try to understand or in terms of she's not introspective, like being in her mind is not like, oh, I'm, I'm getting to know this person's mind in such an intimate, interesting way. No, it was just like, like, like watching her flit around and cause havoc with her decisions was in some ways like watching a a train wreck, but like you could not avert your eyes. I loved that. I also, I just thought that the overall commentary on class and not just like class hierarchies in the U.S., but how those differ from those abroad at the time was something a little bit different than than other books that I've seen that think classics in the same kind of realm or, or sphere. So those are some of some of what I what I loved. And of course, just Edith Wharton's absolutely delicious writing. Yeah. Her prose is stunning. There are some sentences in here, especially her opening sentences for each new chapter and her cliffhangers. Oh yeah. She's just so skilled. I think part of what I enjoyed so much about this, I mean, it read as a classic and also didn't. So it feels very modern, both in the writing style and in the themes. And, um, which is fascinating because Edith Wharton is very much sketching a picture of a specific time period. And it feels like even though she has a bunch of themes that reveal themselves through this narrative, it didn't necessarily feel to me like she had a single thesis. More that she set out to capture a portrait of her time, of her people, and just kind of capture what American life was like in the Gilded Age, which I think she did so well. And then through that portrait, of course, we get all of these themes like ambition and marriage and business and gender and um, old world and new world. All of these themes come about, but it didn't feel to me like there was one singular thesis that she was going after. No. Just very much felt like she was taking us on a journey and painting this lush picture for us to interpret. And that has made this such a perfect book club book and also I think is going to make it a classic that I want to reread time and again through my life. And that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it didn't feel heavy handed, even though there are like a couple of um, sections, chapters throughout the book where she like kind of gives you a break from the action to be like, let's let's have these two characters talk a little bit about theme. But everything felt so true to the characters and the setting and the characters' relationships with each other felt real that they would be having these kinds of conversations or arguments or observations. And so it didn't feel like the author inserting her her views. I, I completely agree that I it was one where I just... I don't know. I I I felt my suspension of disbelief like f- 
fully, I felt my disbelief fully suspended and they felt like real people to me that I was like watching it. And that's, that may, this may sound weird, but that's kind of rare for me as a reader. Like I, I think I am often more interested and invested in like the structure, the style, the prose. I'm obviously very interested in story and narrative, but that's not necessarily what I'm typically reading for. And in this case, I really just started feeling like, oh my gosh, Undine, why are you making that decision? Instead of thinking like, why is Wharton choosing this course of action? And that's just a very different reading experience. It was a lot of fun. I think that's part of the brilliance of Edith Wharton's writing, Mm -hmm. that she takes herself out of the equation so well in that way. But let's talk about Undine because, I mean, she's really going to be the core of this episode. She is the protagonist in that we are following her for the majority of the novel. And um, she's also labeled in the introductions to these books, just like kind of canonically as a signature unlikable heroine or even an anti-heroine. And I would love to talk more about that, um, about her as an anti-heroine or one of the introductions that we read kind of questioned, is she a spoiled monster or is she just a super ambitious woman? And I am curious to hear where you landed on Undine after reading the book. Um, okay, so, I mean, well, let's talk a little bit about, like, what we mean by antihero, because I feel yeah. like that um, we talk about, or not, but the, our culture talks about that so much, like, like, we were... I think in the age of the antihero for so long in terms of television and culture and like now like the only movies you can go see are like Marvel movies where we're like we want heroes again I think I I think maybe we're moving in a direction where people want like mm-hmm. earnest stories or heroes again but but generally I mean antiheroes are just like main characters or protagonists of the story that don't have like the traditionally heroic traits that we think of. Right. So it's like a a story, a story centered on somebody unlikable. But I think within that um, framework, there's also an understanding that antiheroes are charismatic or like you find yourself, if not rooting for them, at least like somewhat sympathetic to them think like Tony Soprano is a our classic one, but even like um, Don Draper in Mad Men or Walter White in, they're usually white men, <laughs> in uh, Breaking Bad are like, you know, classic in a different sense, antiheroes. And so I think in the sense that like Undine is our protagonist and she doesn't have very heroic attributes, like she's definitely an anti-heroine. Um, I, I do, I did, in terms of how charismatic I thought she was, that ebbed and flowed for me. Um, But I do think that one of the things that Wharton is able to do so skillfully that, that I think makes for a good antihero focused story 
is that you do find yourself siding or rooting for her, even if it's not what you really want to happen. You're like intrigued enough by the drama that you want to see what happens if she gets her way. Um, I, you know, I, I did find myself like, you know, just wanting to see her, you know, like land the next husband and then see what would, would happen from there. So that doesn't answer your question about, is she a spoiled monster or what was the other? Ambitious woman. I think she can be both. I mean, I don't think that's a binary. She's definitely ambitious, but ambitious in a different sense. Like I, I don't know. I think in our contemporary definition, ambition is like you set a goal and you go after it. Undine is more, I would just describe her as greedy. She sees something she wants and then she wants it. And then she sees another thing that she wants and then she wants that. Yeah. I thought that was a great point someone in our Discord made was that she she kind of lacks uh, creativity to be called ambitious where she only knows she wants something if she sees somebody else has it. I think we probably also in our modern day like have distance ambition from wealth in a, in the way we talk about it. Like, you know, we're like oh, people who are ambitious, they want success, which mm-hmm. of course I think like alludes to the idea of success. But I think when we think about people as ambitious, we're not thinking primarily of like, oh, they want money. Um, even if that might be the driving force for many people's ambitions, right? <laughs> so I think Undine is just very upfront about the fact that her ambitions are for comfort and luxury and and fun. Like she wants to be thought of well enough to be invited to all of the best places. Those are her ambitions. So I, so she is. I think we could say ambitious, but I think greedy would be an equally appropriate <laughs> word. Yeah. And that alone wouldn't make an anti-heroine to be desiring of things and like getting after what she wants and making choices that are kind of selfish. That alone to me isn't anti-hero behavior. No. Although I, I do think that that in like contemporary literature, that tends to be like, like something that authors play with, like, oh, she's unlikable, mm-hmm. but really she is just am- ambitious, but that comes yeah. across as unlikable. Like that idea is so prominent. Undine is something different. Yeah. It's the fact that she goes after what she wants at the expense of other people and really just thinks of them as like her dolls. Like she doesn't conceptualize. She doesn't have any kind of empathy. Um, She doesn't think about the effects that any of her behavior will have on other people. And that's where she's kind of dangerous. Um, Okay. Backtracking a little bit though, because something that you said made me think of this. I was watching Selling Sunset the other night just like to have something totally trashy on in the background while I was painting my nails. And this was from like a couple seasons ago. I'm not caught up. But, and honestly, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching the show because I just like can't <laughs> deal with it. I'm not a great reality TV show watcher. But 
one of the women, one of the realtors, called another one a social climber. Mm. And this was like the worst insult. You would have thought that she called her the C word or like (laughs) something like way worse or like a baby eater, the way that this woman responded to being called a social climber. And it made me think of Undine, of course, and just sort of our contemporary ideas around wealth. Mm -hmm. And that like today, yeah, it definitely is seen as icky to be a social climber and to sort of use people to get up another rung of the ladder. But this real, like she is a kind of a social climber. Oh, she, wait, yes, the realtor she has or her own? Both. <laughs> okay. The, the realtor, she is a social climber. Like she has all of a lot of her own money. She started several businesses, but also like when you are a celebrity realtor, what are you doing except using your connections to make more money? And I just, in Undine's time, it's just, it's amazing how nothing really changes. Undine doesn't, she wouldn't care if someone calls her a social climber. Like, I don't think she would go and approach them at a party and, you know, start a a bitch fight. (laughs) She would just like, (laughs) she would just be like, hmm, I kind of (laughs) am. I don't really care. But like, I think society, the way that sort of that old money views the the new money families like Undine and her family coming in and being social climbers, we still see that today. It's just that it's, uh, I don't know, like that old money versus new money culture is different today. But that social climbing that like you, you have to be ambitious, but not too visibly ambitious. And of course you have to use your connections and kind of use people. And if you make, if you marry this person, it's going to make your social standing better, but you can't talk about it like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, all of these things are still true. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that is one of the things that makes this book so relevant today is just that that dynamic, that idea of like how, how how important and essential, like striving for financial stability or like true wealth is in real life, but how like the pretense around ambition for like, you know, for, for the, for pride and the like a feeling of success rather than material gain is, is, still important. Um, yeah, I loved all of the, the like old money, new money stuff because Wharton is not, um, she's not kind in either direction. She's pretty ruthless in both directions, which I really appreciated because I think in a lot of fiction that delves into that, it's easy to kind of like take a side and, and, propose that one of these groups value systems is more ethical than the others. And she's not really doing that. I mean, she's certainly more like critical of Undine because we spend more time looking at Undine, but I don't think the other side (laughs) gets, uh, gets like a good edit either. (laughs) No. And I think sort of in the American historical canon, like, 
the new money crowd are seen as the heroes Mm -hmm. and the old money crowd are sort of the, not villains, but they are um, seen as just like the snobs. Even if you're watching The Gilded Age on HBO, like that is how it is depicted. You're rooting for the people who have the new money to enter this society and to be included. You are not rooting for the old money people to keep all of their stuffy ways because it's seen as like they're holding people back. Right. But um, if you're watching Downton Abbey, you kind of are. And I, so I feel right. like this is so, that is so American, which is yes, the point, right? Um, the custom of the country, undies, America, drag, yeah. U.S. as one of our introductions I'm so glad pointed, <laughs> pointed yes. out for us um, <laughs> because, yeah, I feel I do think that like that rooting for, you know, the upstart is so, so American and so hard to shake that I think that's part of why this book is such an interesting reading experience, because even when you go go in and you know that. Undine is going to be very unlikable and you start seeing the things that she's doing. You're like, you're prepared for that. And she starts doing these terrible things. She is actually unlikable, not just like unlikable woman, like trope. And then you discover that it's really like, you know, whatever. Um, But you do find, at least for me, I did find myself being like, but like, I don't know about you know, these old, old money guys who she's like right. harming. Like there's a, there's still a way in which there's still a way in which you're like rooting for the idea of what she's after, even as her, as a character's like behavior is just like <laughs> completely reprehensible. Yeah. That didn't really sink in for me. Like I didn't <laughs> really get confronted with my own Americanness. Yeah. <laughs> until the chapters where she's married to the French aristocrat mm-hmm. and Raymond. Mm-hmm. And um he is just so mad at her because she keeps spending money and spending money and spending money. And she's first of all, she's spending money because she's bored out of her mind because he won't let her go anywhere. Second, she's like, well, why can't we just sell a few of our antiques? And I really found myself rooting for her and being like, yeah, stick it to this old French fart who doesn't <laughs> yeah. let you go anywhere. And I want you to go to Paris and wear all the pretty dresses you want to, Undine. And who cares if you sell a couple of vases? It's, what <laughs> yeah. does it matter? All of these things are going to be destroyed in the war in a couple of years anyway. Like, I just kind of found myself really rooting for her um, in a way that I didn't in the first couple of sections when Mm. she was married to Ralph, who is really, he's a very interesting character. I did not expect when I was reading the introductions to this book and kind of like, you know, we, we go, we went in as blind as we could, but we knew that we were really reading with a focus on Undine and that she was the main character. Yeah. But I did not expect Edith Wharton to do so much with Ralph. Mm-hmm. He's a really complex character as well. And he she's doing a lot of interesting gender things where like mm-hmm. he's the romantic, he's the 
the poet. He's the heartbroken one. He is the passive one. Like, you know, a lot of stereotypically, especially in these kinds of classic marriage plot novels, feminine traits are given to to Ralph. But he's not a flat character. Like there is like there is complexity and nuance to him. So, you know, she's she's like she's making him into in some ways the stereotypical like heroine of this kind of novel, tragic heroine of this kind of novel, but she's not like it's not in a reductive way. Yeah, and this book I think in a different author's hands would be very allegorical. Yeah. So Ralph very much, it is symbolic. Ralph very much symbolizes old money Mm -hmm. and sort of the inability for some of these people to adjust to change, to be dynamic, to have that ambition. It's like the the absence of that ambition and that striving that Undine has is not healthy either. Right. And it's sort of, he represents very literally, spoiler alert, the death of the old money families, mm-hmm. whereas Undine is representing this new American ideal. Mm-hmm. And so they are very symbolic characters, but this book somehow doesn't read like an allegory and they still read like real people, not just the symbols that they were, which is great. It's amazing when you get an author who can do this and operate on multiple different levels. And um, yeah, Ralph was really interesting to me. And I think it's really significant. And I am still thinking about my reaction to Undine as a mother. Mm. I think what Edith Wharton is doing. So there, there is a lot of gender role swapping mm-hmm. where Undine is sort of the like go-getter. If she, we've talked about many times in in book club in our recaps, if she were a businessman, she would have different options and, you know, she would be climbing society in a different way. <clears throat> um, she becomes a mother pretty early in the novel and there's this great passage where she discovers that she's pregnant and she just sobs. She's so upset because she's not going to be able to wear any new pretty clothes or go to all of the parties that she wants to. And she's just really upset about entering motherhood. And that part, like we were okay with. Oh yeah. Um, because that's like a very real emotion to feel on the brink of major life change, like motherhood. I sometimes still feel that way (laughs) when I'm like, I have to take care of my toddler today and oh my goodness, what I wouldn't give to just like have my freedom back for yeah, a and, few hours, you know? Right. And it, I, it's also like for people who feel that way, just like I don't want to be a mom because I don't want to yeah. give up all of these, these things or change these aspects of my life. Like that's like a very, like Undine didn't have that choice then mm-hmm. and now many women do not all um mm-hmm. but we want that we want women to have that choice yeah like, so so absolutely yeah i i loved that scene but, but then <laughs> she is with another married man and 
she is like having a great time with him and scheming about how she can get more of his money. And turns out she has forgotten her son's birthday. Just plum forgot that she was supposed to pick him up and take him over to his his birthday party. Right. To his birthday party. Not just forgot his birthday, which would be enough, but that she was like pivotal to the plan, like in order to get her son to his birthday. And he was not like turning (laughs) one where he wouldn't remember it. He is like devastated because he was told that mom was going to take him to have birthday cake Mm -hmm. at his grandparents' house. Mm -hmm. And then that's where you're like, oh no, she's horrible. Well, and that scene is so great because there's like a moment where she's like, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Yeah. And I, and honestly like that, the inclusion of that is such good writing and such good character development because mm-hmm. she feels like she's forgetting something, but she doesn't care enough to even interrogate that to like <laughs> <Yes>. think through <laughs> what, what am I might forgetting? I be forgetting. Like, what are some of the, you know, what day is it? What are some of the important things going on? What would mm-hmm. be really like bad for me to miss? And then it's just like, oh, maybe like half a page later or another page later where she rem- it just comes to her that it's and she Paul's doesn't birthday. feel remorse about it no. which i think like if she would have felt horrible we could have been like okay but instead she like turns she makes up all these lies and she talks about why she had to miss it and anyway um so that's like one strike against her as, as a mother and then she schemes to get her child back for the money, not because she actually wants her child with her. Mm-hmm. And so there are these instances, I think, Wharton, you know, I don't know that we could have turned on Undine as much or that she would have been as unlikable without her poor mothering. It's so interesting because I I agree with that, but I also feel like Wharton isn't making any sort of push for like how a mother should be like the lesson the takeaway somehow does not at all feel like she's shaming a certain type of like mothering or saying that like you know undine needs to be completely totally devoted to her child above all else in order for her to be a redeemable character it's just that she's using motherhood and our expectations of motherhood to further develop the idea of like who Undine is as a very selfish character. And I think in part just because like, you know, when you see her behave in this way, totally dismissive, people who aren't right in front of her completely disappear. That's like a big part of her Mm-hmm. Her character is like, <laughs> if someone's not in front of her, like they do not exist in her world. And that extends to her own child and to just like a very like innocent character, right? I think part of it is, of course, like that it's her own child, but just even the fact that like she's as willing to step on somebody very pure and innocent as she is to maybe like a man who she sees having done her some some wrong is part of what is revelatory about who she is. And interestingly, the thing that kind of redeems Ralph is his fatherhood. So I don't particularly like Ralph as a character, but yet the only reason I was really rooting for him in certain chapters was because he 
revealed a very clear love for his son and a desire to keep his son, even though, you know, Ralph wasn't, it's not like he was always present either. He would have his son staying with his sister for a time so that he could go and do business. He wasn't going to make it to his son's birthday party either. He didn't forget about it, but he was, you he know, was busy late. with, yeah. with mm-hmm. work and he was late, so he wasn't going to make it. Um, and he was relying on Undine and his family to step in in that way. And, but even so, the thing that made me sort of root for him or want him to find some sort of success was his relationship with Paul, was his relationship with his kid and sort of just his, his love, his father's love. And it, it's, yeah, Morton's just really brilliantly flipping gender roles. I in think, really interesting ways. Yeah, and I think one of the best the one of the best things about Ralph as a father is how he won't let anybody say anything bad about Undine to Paul. That is such a like that's such a clear picture of his care for Paul that even after everything that Undine has done to hurt him and to hurt Paul that he doesn't want Paul to have to at this point at least have the pain of like having to think negatively about his mother or think that you know she might not want him love him and all this and I I that that was a really like kind of touching element of of Ralph as a as a father and a character so I agree that Wharton isn't necessarily making any commentary on motherhood specifically other than just like motherhood as part of marriage and women's roles in society. Um, and I think we touched quite a bit on American ambition and sort of that old versus new money. But since we're talking about Ralph a little bit, what do you think Wharton was exploring with sort of this clear comparison between marriage and business where Undine is operating in the marriage market mm-hmm. and her father and her husband and her future husband are all operating in the stock market. I think that marriage is even compared to the stock exchange at some point in the novel. What do you think Wharton was commenting on with this kind of dual theme? Yeah. I mean, I I think part of what she's commenting on is how (laughs) kind of dangerous it is for individuals and for society to like remove women from the business sphere and only give them access to money and power through marriage, like how that could, how limiting that is, how that can corrupt, how, um, how just dangerous it is for an, an individual to be siloed in that way. Um, but I also think that she like, is very clear-eyed about how so many marriages worked and that they were these business arrangements, right? These business deals arranged between families or the individuals themselves and how like the, the positions of power within those dealings changed over time how like new, you know, new arrangements, like new kind of caveats to the merger would have to arise based on 
new situations. So I and and not just through Undine's marriages, but through very clearly through Peter Van Degen and his wife Claire, who are two prominent characters we we see there. Um, and I'm not like I I think I if I knew a little bit more about like the history of Wall Street, I might be able to say more about what she's saying about that kind of business dealing. Um, I do think, right, this is like a transition period where previously, like, you know, you, the wealthy, like, didn't work. And that was, that, that was very important to (laughs) the idea of wealth, that it like provided you with leisure time. You were, you were a gentleman, right? You didn't have to, to work. And now, like, you know, it's a, we expect uh, people who are exceedingly wealthy to talk about how much they work, how many hours they put in. And it's not that wealth isn't still passed down um, in families, et cetera, but just like our idea of what it means to have money has has changed. And we're kind of seeing the transition here. But I'm not sure I know enough about like what Wharton thought about that, what the time period was really like on Wall Street to to know what she was kind of poking at there. I mean, I mostly just we know that it was extremely corrupt and that the business dealings rather than, you know, you could have some guys shaking hands one day and holding their fingers crossed behind their back. Like there was no, it just seems like at this period, manners and propriety went out the window in favor of just selfishness and individualism and greed. And, um, you know, sometimes at the expense of laborers, which is never touched on in this novel at all. It's this, the custom of the country is very focused on wealthy upper class. Like we don't talk about the lower classes at all, which Wharton wouldn't have known about. She was in, in these upper social circles herself. Um, I do think just on the marriage side of things, so kind of early in um, the novel, actually, while everybody's waiting for Undine to show up for the birthday party, there's this sort of um, monologue from a character talking about American marriage versus European marriage. And it's where the title of the book comes from, The Custom of the Country. And he's talking about how in America, husbands leave their wives out of all of their business and it's very separate spheres. And that's why, you know, their marriages don't really work. The husbands are just trying to keep their wives happy, but out of their hair. They don't involve them in anything. And that that's sort of a failing of the system. And that in Europe, the husbands involve their wives more and sort of work as a team and they... um, you know, treat them as an intelligent being rather than just a a pretty trophy on the shelf. But then later in the book, when Undine marries Raymond and she is an aristocratic European wife, we see that that American's view of European marriage wasn't necessarily 100% true. Um, Yes, Undine is like, frankly, she's just not smart enough to keep up with (laughs) um, Raymond's day-to-day running of of his estate. Like she just, and she has no interest in it. But he does have the expectation that she partners with him, but his expectation is that she partners with him in 
his endeavors. Right. That's not a partnership. Mm -hmm. So the European way seems to be like, yes, they will involve their wives as long as they have the same goal in mind, as long as the wives keep to all of the strict rules of society, and as long as the wives are, you know, like always on the same page as the husbands, then yes, they involve them more. He might tell her about more business, and he does try to explain it, and she she just doesn't get it (laughs) because she's... American. She's like, I'm not supposed to know this. You're just supposed to buy me pretty things. Mm -hmm. Um, But we see like all of the women in his family, like they're just embroidering every day and they're like very proud to uphold the family status, but that's all that they get to do. Unless you're going to be the kind of wife like the um, princess in the novel who's like, well, if your husband's off running and doing whatever he wants to do, why don't you go have an affair? Um, But those are the options. There is no sort of equality in marriage. Um, So I found that American versus European comparison very interesting, especially since we get kind of like the glimpse at a better way in Europe at the beginning of the novel. And then we see in reality, is it better Mm -hmm. later on? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's, you know, and we, we talk sometimes right about like these these older books and whether they're proto-feminist or feminist. And this one, I find that to be such an interesting question because I don't think, I don't, I don't know. I don't think Wharton was a feminist. I don't think Undine is a feminist, but I think that this book is like pretty feminist (laughs) in that it is like really examining like the limitations on women. And it's feminist in, in a very like, white, like wealthy feminist. It's not intersectionally feminist in any stretch of the imagination. But even though, you know, Wharton isn't like giving a lot of like, um, I don't know, easy takeaways about gender or gender politics, like they're just as built into the foundation of this novel, this understanding that women's roles were so limited. And like that kind of is the, that question, that idea is the framework for everything that, that happens from here on out. So even though, you know, I agree with you, there is no intersectional feminism present in this novel, race still has a significant presence when we think of Undine Sprague as sort of the token victimized white self-victimized white woman. And I do think it's really interesting to look at her through that lens of like, what can we learn about white feminism from Undine and how it has trickled down through history. And every single situation that she gets herself into and she makes poor choices, she then turns it into she's the victim. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do think it's really interesting to sort of read this book as like, what can we learn about white women and their their protected class and their, um, yeah, their sort of inclination to self-victimize like that and mm-hmm. just blame everybody else and kind of put up the walls and like always be protected and in a little glass case. She really, Undine really manages to do that again and again and again in a very like blatant and obvious way that I think a lot of 
white women today would argue like, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she has a sort of like, um, like a lean in white feminist attitude mm-hmm. of like, I, I should be able to do this because this is how men behave. Like men have, men have mistresses. So I should be able to like go around with all of these men and get money from them. If that's <laughs> what I, and jewels, mm-hmm. if that's what I want or like, you know, I don't think she's logically thinking this, but but Wharton is inviting us to consider the comparison as we've done already in our episode today of like, well, she doesn't have an avenue available to her in the business world. So this is her way of like climbing the financial ladder. And if it's okay for men to be like financially ambitious, why isn't it okay for her to be financially ambitious? And so I I I love that. Um the way that she's ooh, just depicting that and inviting us to critique that and be thinking like, maybe we shouldn't be saying like, sure, you can do that because like, if you were a man, that'd be fine. And more like, maybe we should think about everyone's values and ethics. Yeah. Something here. different beyond yeah. just achieving the power of white men. Like mm-hmm. what would, what would it look like to desire something different for ourselves and for our ambitions to not always be set on that American ideal. Um, we didn't even get to talk about Elmer Moffat. Oh my gosh, Elmer. Also is such a dynamic character in this book and is such a strong presence, even though he's not on the page very often. We talk about him a lot in our recaps though, and we are going to run out of time, I think, if we go into too much detail here. But um, I think we talked enough about Wharton's writing style. She is a genius. If you are writing a novel, I think you should read this book. Yeah. Like this is a book that writers should read because she is genius at plotting. She is just absolutely brilliant. And in one of our favorite introductions that we read from Brandon Taylor, who is an incredible critic and a very good writer, he talks about that, how like Wharton is just genius. Um, but anyway, I think we should, should ask our key question and then get into pairing Sarah. Yeah. So we're going to try from now on out to kind of end our episodes. Well, before we get into end our discussions, before we get into pairings with asking like, what makes this book a classic? And we, we thought of this question for this particular book because Edith Wharton is a canonical writer, like The Age of Innocence and The House of Mirth, Ethan Frome, like those are very much texts in the literary canon that are taught in high schools and and studied, you know, written about extensively in college. And it's not that The Custom of the Country is not studied or written about, but it's not the canonical Wharton that most people think of when they think of her, her text. So so we're we're saying, at least for the purposes of our conversation, that while this isn't like Edith Wharton's canonical novel, it is a classic. So if it's not firmly in the canon, what makes it a classic? And that's a that's what we're gonna be asking about all of our all of our books from now on. What makes this a classic? So Chelsea, what do you what do you think? I mean, my first inclination is to say that the themes resonate today, but I think that that is in part a byproduct of 
the Gilded Age time period and the fact that so much of that time period feels like we are repeating history today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's part of it. But I think so much of that is just the setting and the nature of those parallels from one historical period to another. Um, One of my favorite sort of core tenets from Italo Calvino, who we're going to talk about more on the podcast, um, is that a classic is a book which, even when we read it for the first time, gives the sense of rereading something we have read before. And I didn't necessarily feel like I was rereading a specific book when I read The Custom of the Country, but it did feel like reading all of the great American novels (laughs) that I've read before. (laughs) Um, And it just just the narrative techniques that Wharton uses are so modern and contemporary. The characterization that she uses, just so many of her plot devices and the twists and turns. I kept describing them in our recaps as very cinematic and it feels like watching a period drama rather than reading a book. And so I just, it has that sense of um, connection to other works in that way, books and TV specifically. There are so many pop culture references that um, are easy to compare it to. And so just those echoes of other texts really make me feel like this is a classic. Yeah, the the Calvino definition that I thought of for this book that really resonated for me is basically a different wording of exactly <laughs> what, what you said. All of his definitions kind of build on each other and relate to each other. But yeah, a classic is a work that comes before other classics. But those who have read other classics first immediately recognize its place in the genealogy of classic works. Like this one very much feels like it's in the genealogy of many other classics. Like to me, it feels very much inspired by something like Vanity Fair by William Thackeray, and then goes on to inspire something like The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like it just feels firmly situated in those stories of wealth and strivers and, um, and, and class divisions. Um, and, and I mean, within the, the narrative arc of love stories, right? Like exploring those ideas through marriage, coupling, kids, all of those, those things. So yeah, I, I feel like it's almost like a, like, like a missing piece in some of what I have read from particularly like between like Victorian British classics and then more modernist works like The Great Gatsby and beyond. It's like this one just fits situated so nicely in between all of those. If I had time, I would love to read The Custom of the Country and The Great Gatsby back to back. Yeah. They're very much in conversation with each other. I think it would be a fascinating reading exercise. If you do it, listeners, let us know. We've got to start reading Brideshead Revisited, but I think <laughs> well, that it would be this might so be in conversation with Brideshead Revisited too. True, I think it true. will. Mm-hmm. But speaking of classics, actually, I have two pairings. They're, I'm I'm kind of cheating on pairings this episode a little bit. I have like pairings of pairings. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that <laughs> speaks to what makes this a classic, right? It feels so 
like influential on so many other books that it was really hard to come up with pairings this time around. It was. But I do know that we had a lot of people joining us for our recap episodes and just in recent months who are newer to the classics or who haven't read a classic in a long time and wanted to pick up the custom of the country because we kept saying this doesn't read like a classic and this is one you should read if you want to get into the classics. So I have a couple of recommendations for um, our listeners who are just interested in reading more classics kind of like this one. First, and these are both classics that we have episodes on, so you can go back and listen to our episodes as supplements here. I think another book that is very much in conversation here is There is Confusion by Jesse Redmond Fawcett, which we read a good bit ago, a couple years ago, and it's a Harlem Renaissance classic. But I remember us talking about ambition and striving a lot in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And what ambition is supposed to look like and what is the cost of ambition because the choices that the characters make in that novel are not always great. And sometimes you shake your head at them and you're like, oh no, what did you do and what is going to happen? Which is very much like on Dean Sprague. So, um, and Jesse Redmond Fawcett is writing about the black experience in New York and Philadelphia. And so just getting a different cultural view of American ideals and American ambition and what it might mean for young black kids growing up and coming of age versus Undine as a young white woman with every social advantage. I think um, just like The Great Gatsby, There is Confusion is a great pairing here. And then just if you like kind of an unlikable heroine, I think a good one to read after this is Emma by Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. I don't find Emma to be unlikable like Undine Sprague. No. Emma does care about people very much so. Too but much she sometimes. is Yes, <laughs> but she is spoiled. Yes. And a little selfish, mm-hmm. and she doesn't always see four steps ahead of her. No. <laughs> and I – and, you know, that book is about marriage and making – a match with advantageous social connections and about class. There are really great crossover themes there, but I also just think, you know, if you're looking for a classic with a complex heroine at the center, Emma by Jane Austen, I think really makes an interesting pairing with this one in a, like I said, in a very different tone in a very different way. But I also find Emma to be super readable, um, very plot driven where you're like, oh, what's going to happen next because a character makes a choice and you're going to see the consequence of that choice later on. And it's there's like a mystery element to Emma. It's very propulsive. So I just think There is Confusion by Jesse Redmond Fawcett and Emma by Jane Austen are classics. So like I said, I'm cheating a little bit, pairing the classics with the classic. But I think they make great follow-ups to the custom of the country and just really fit that classic definition that you and I were talking about, which we didn't even plan when I decided to do these pairings. Yeah. Um, I love, I love that. And I, um, um, Emma was our very first episode we recorded. So if you do go back and listen to that, I will be (laughs) curious to hear how, uh, how the podcast has evolved (laughs) since then. Cause I haven't gone back and, and listened to those early episodes ever. Okay. Um, well, I'll just throw out then because I just kind of tacked on a bonus. I did already mention this, but Vanity Fair by William 
Makepeace Thackeray um, is like basically the British version of the custom of the country. It's about Becky Sharp. She is a um, the illegitimate daughter of of somebody. So she, you know, gets educated and um, but only in order to be a governess, she can't like go on to have a great marriage or so she's told. She has other ideas, um, but she is also like pretty unlikable, but but fun. She's more of a fun hang than Undine is. <laughs> she's like, she's definitely more of a master manipulator, even though her plans sometimes get foiled. She knows what she's doing. So I'll throw that out. And then um, a book that very much to me felt like not a retelling, but heavily inspired by Vanity Fair and probably is also heavily inspired by Custom of the Country is Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee. This book I loved so much. So she's the author of Pachinko. And um, this book is is completely different than Pachinko. It follows a a young woman named Casey Han. She is Korean-American. Her parents are Korean immigrants. And she, the very beginning of the, of the book, she decides to, to leave home. It's post-college, but she's been living at home. She gets in this huge fight with her parents and she, she leaves. She's dating this very wealthy white man. She's trying to make it in Wall Street. She wants to be a, a stockbroker. She wants to make her own money. Um, she's kind of taken under her wing by another um, Korean-American young woman who is has none of her own um, career ambitions. She's kind of happily in, uh, engaged to somebody very wealthy. And so Casey, she's just like the outsider in this very, very wealthy New York City group. And she's a striver. Like she, she cares about becoming financially successful. She um, went to Princeton. She got an economics degree. She, but she does not have the leg up that some of these other people do. And it's a community novel. Like it, it really follows everybody in that circle. But mostly Casey. Minjin Lee said that she wrote this like inspired by all of the Victorian novels she loved. And it really feels like a Victorian novel in terms of structure, in terms of style, in terms of length. Um, I, I really, I mean, the, the, the publisher's blurb describes it as a sharp-eyed epic of love, greed, and ambition. Um, it very much is. I think, so I've seen, you know, looking at like Goodreads reviews and Amazon reviews and things, People often describe Casey as unlikable, but she is definitely not an Undine Sprague kind of unlikable. She makes bad decisions, but you can kind of see where they're they're coming from, and she definitely cares about people. And I think reading this with Custom of the Country would be really interesting, especially thinking about what we talked about with like white women as a protected class and what 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 maybe white readers, white American readers expect from an immigrant character or, or a child of immigrants and like the expectation of gratitude and things like that, that like that Casey refuses to give us and that Minjin Lee refuses to give us. And I just, I love that. And the other thing I love about this book is I I feel like this book was just Minjin Lee being like, I mean, she's doing so much. There are so many great important themes, but part of it is just like, 
I'm going to give you 650 pages of my community just being my community because we read 650 pages of these Victorian novels and and her, you know, she deserves that too. And so I just, I love that so much. I think it's a great book for anyone who likes Victorian novels or Edith Wharton. There are lots of little Edith Wharton Easter eggs throughout Free Food for Millionaires. Oh, that sounds like the perfect pairing. I have some nonfiction pairings, which I I love to bring some nonfiction to the podcast. Um, These books, I think, just pair really well thematically with the custom of the country. And I know I'm not the only one interested in some nonfiction about this time period because a lot of our Discord questions, a lot of what our community has brought up is just questions about history, um, which makes sense when you're reading a classic set in a very specific time, written in a specific time. Um, And so I have some books that aren't just about Gilded Age history, but I think really contextualize what Wharton is doing here, which I think Wharton is in part working on sort of a definition of what an American is in this book and what an American woman is versus an American man. Um, And one of the books on my shelves that is just like, it's such a chunky novel (laughs) or it's not a novel, such a chunky work of nonfiction, but um, it'll take me forever to get through, but I I like what I have have read so far in it is These Truths, A History of the United States by Jill Lepore. I love her writing. She's a great storyteller. And this is just, you know, one of her quintessential works. And this is her one volume history that is predicated on the, you know, these truths that Jefferson laid out. So she's constantly coming back to how did, how has America adjusted and worked around these truths, political equality, natural rights, sovereignty of the people. Um, Has it delivered? Has America kept to those promises? Um, So she starts in 1492 and she goes all the way up to present day um, and investigates politics and um, the legacy of slavery and industrialism and just big changes in American history and how America has shaped America. Um, And so whereas Wharton is really taking a look at the social structures of America. I think Lepore is taking a much wider view. But if this book brought up questions for you about America itself, your own Americanism, American ideals, I think that these truths by Jill Lepore is a great place to go. Um, Like I said, it's really long. If you like nonfiction on audio, I think that this one makes for a great audiobook listen. But um, it's also just one that you can dip in and out of. Um, and every person that I know who has read this has said it's so worth the time. It's so worth the time to get all of those history lessons. And I think it serves as a really great backbone text for if you want to read more American literature. And then the other nonfiction book that I would recommend, and this is a book this came out back in 2006. And I remember using chapters of this book and citing pieces of this book in papers in college. (laughs) Um, But it is Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage by Stephanie Kuntz. 
And if you are interested in the history of marriage and how we got from sort of Undine's view of marriage as a way to climb up a social rung on the ladder to today where it's like you fall in love and then you get married, this is a a great book to pick up for that. Um, Just kind of takes you from um, marital culture and um, traditions all the way from ancient times through um, the Victorian age and then a little bit later and sort of tracks how marriage changed from a business deal and a political deal to something about love and emotion. Um, And part of her argument that is really interesting is that marriage as an institution has suffered for being turned into something about love and personal relationship instead of about business. That is interesting. Which goes super well with the custom of the country. Mm-hmm. Totally. All right. What's next on your list? Okay. Um, my next book, it actually, it came out last year, it came out in 2023. So it's a pretty new book. It is called One Woman Show by Christine Colson. And this book, it's, oh, it's so good. It's so interesting. So um, the highlight of this book in many ways is the structure. So Christine Colson worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many, many years. And one of her projects was writing all of the museum's wall labels for the British galleries. And as she was doing that, she just kind of had the thought would I could I write an entire novel in the style of museum wall labels? And she does. And she tells the story of a woman named Kitty Whitaker, who is born in and living in the Guild, Gilded Age, New York City. And Kitty is the the object, the art that these labels describe. So it starts, you know, with like Kitty, like in the collection of her parents, right? And it describes her as as an infant and then a child. And then as she's acquired by a husband, right? There's like an acquisitions announcement. And now she's in like in his private collection. Um, It is so hard to describe, but it is so fantastic. And it tells the story of her entire life in these wall labels. It's only 200 pages, which is, I think, genius because it would be hard to read much more in this style. But that's also like pretty impressive because each of these, you know, wall labels is like 300 words or something. It's like just a paragraph per page, really. And the amount she's able to fit into this structure about Kitty's life Um, and actually make it like at times like sad or poignant or, or moving, like how much she tells you about like the, the hopes and the tragedies of this woman's life. It's extremely impressive. It's not, it does, you know, in some ways feel like an experiment in structure, but, but not in a way that it feels like she's, that the story or the emotion is suffering because of her adherence to the, to the style. So, I mean, I think that this pairs very well with custom of the country, 
because of that idea of like wives as an acquisition, as a trophy, as something that um, a wealthy man would bring into his collection as another like jewel or piece of art. She's really hammering that home literally in, in this book. And even though Kitty and Undine don't have a lot of similarities the, in term, other than like time period um, and being women in this very specific marriage market, the themes are really quite similar. So that is One Woman Show by Christine Coulson. All right. My last pairing is a little less serious than <laughs> my first few. Um, but also, okay, Sarah, when you were talking about One Woman Show, do you remember the line that Wharton wrote about Undine viewing her son as an acquisition? Yes. I still I still think about that sometimes. That uh-huh. and her most effective dress. Yes. Those lines just live in my head forever. <laughs> totally. They're so um, good. Anyway, I... Um, if you're interested in just like the messy drama of it all, a book that um, I kept thinking of, particularly because there's some unlikable women in here, is Wahala by Nikki May. This came out a few years ago, and um, it's a debut. I don't know if Nikki May has written anything since. I think she's working on something else. Um, but it is a novel about female friendship, which there is really no female friendship in the custom of the country. Um, but this is about some British Nigerian best friends. And then there is a glamorous woman who kind of comes into their friend group and blows it all apart. Um, we have Ranka and Boo and Simi and, you know, they all have their different characteristics. Um, they all want different things. They're all in various relationships, married or with boyfriends, um, and navigating that. And, you know, they just, each one wants something she doesn't have. And then Isabel comes into the group and she's super glamorous, has all of these connections. And she kind of takes each member under her wing in a certain way and kind of like brushes them up a little bit and kind of it seems like they're each having a glow up with Isabel. Um, But then the more that she kind of intervenes and interferes with all of these women's lives, the worse things get and the more chaos ensues. Um, It's a very sharp novel on ambition and culture and Wahala means trouble. Um, and so you just constantly feel like something bad is going to happen and something is brewing. And, um, I remember listening to it on audio and really enjoying it. Um, Isabel is a fascinating character. She's really flashy. She wants to be the center of attention. She's manipulative and very, you know, Undine-esque. So it's messy. Um, it's not a perfect book, but there were fun twists and turns. Um, and so I think if you're looking for something that's got kind of that like dishy glamorous feel, Wahala by Nikki May might, might fit the bill. All right. My final pairing is Trust by Hernan Diaz. This book. So Custom of the Country, as, as we learned, was in part Wharton's response to the idea of like a business novel. 
And this is very much a response to the idea of a business novel as well. In fact, it begins with a book within a book, a fictitious biography of a Wall Street tycoon named Benjamin Rask and his wife and just like how successful they were and like about their very, their American dream. And then that's part one of the novel. And then part two is, or maybe, oh, or maybe part one is like a novelization of his life, something like that. It's a book within a book. And then the next part is like the real person's like memoir or attempts at a memoir. And I'm not even going to say what parts three and four are because the surprise and delight of uncovering what they are is just the pleasure of reading this book. But it's it's set um, mainly in, in the 1920s, so a little bit later um, than Gilded Age, but still very much in this Wall Street boom and unpacking the like self-made, the idea of the self-made man and also examining the way wealth and class influence marriage and marriage roles, who's allowed to do what, all of that is is in here. The other thing that brought this to mind when thinking about pairings for the custom of the country was that Diaz said that there are a lot of American novels about class, but not a lot of American novels about money. And he wanted to write a book about money and the influence money has and what people will do to get money. And while Custom of the Country, I would say, is more about class, it is also about money. Like there, you know, Undine wants things and it's not enough for her to marry into the upper class. She wants to be in the upper class and have the type of money that new money has. Like she's very much, she's equally interested (laughs) in class and just like the things, the stuff, the money and what her money can buy. So I think this idea of like an American novel that's not just about class, but really examining money is another reason that trust to me very much um, is in conversation with the custom of the country. Well, we're so glad that you all followed along with us, whether you read The Custom of the Country and are just tuning in now or you listen to all of our recaps on Patreon. We're just so glad that you join us for these very nerdy deep dives. And we're so excited for you to come with us for a spring season full of more great classics. We didn't even talk all that much about Wharton's sense of humor and the bits and pieces of satire in this novel. But that was another thing we loved and transitions perfectly into our new season all about satire. So in March, we are reading Brideshead Revisited, and we hope you come along with us for that. You can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and sign up. You can find all of our recaps for the custom of the country there, the classes that we taught. It's all in a collection on Patreon, so it's super easy to find. We're working on creating collections for our past book content on Patreon, and our whole backlog of classes is available to you when you sign up. So we would love to have you and we would love for you to stick around with us in the spring and then we will have another read along like this in the summer. So um, we're just really thankful that you're here and we're, we're just really looking forward to what's coming up next. 
Spring season is going to be a blast and we can't wait to keep reading with you. Thanks to all of our patrons and special thanks to our executive producers, Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, Jody, Karen, and Diane, whose generous support sustains our show. Thanks also to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Bye.